So the topic is philosophy and faith, and it has the subtitle, Is Reason Enough? And the essence of the talk is to show how fundamentally important faith is in the makeup of a human being. Now, it is essential that we clarify what we mean by faith so that there is no doubt about what we are talking about. In Ireland, we often speak of faith as a sort of an acceptance without question. And it may appear like that in some instances. However, faith, when you examine it, is found to be something much deeper and substantial. And it is something which is at the very core of our being. So tonight let us explore in greater detail what is meant by faith as a fundamental aspect of a human being. When we speak of faith tonight then, we are not speaking of blind faith, but rather of faith which is a fundamental aspect of our very existence and which may be discovered in real practice and which may be strengthened by reason and discrimination. So what is faith? The Sanskrit word for faith is shraddha. We're very fortunate in the school that we study Sanskrit, so you get a great opportunity to look up words in Sanskrit which gives you another sort of view of what the word means. Like if you look up faith in an English dictionary, you get a certain meaning to it. But when you look it up in Sanskrit, you get a much more fundamental understanding of the word. And this word, shraddha, is made up of two words. The words shrat and dha. And the first word means truth. One of its meanings is truth. And the second word is a verb, daha, and its basic meaning is to uphold and nourish. So, truth is often spoken of as the underlying essence or substance of everything, that which never changes. So, you get a sense of being upheld and nourished by that in us which is real and substantial and unchanging. So that, that's the sense of the meaning of faith, looking at it from the Sanskrit. Now we may think, and quite often we do think, that there is nothing in us which is real substantial and unchanging. Now if we do, we are mistaken and we are missing out on the most important aspect of our being. It's a bit like a millionaire suffering from amnesia. He or she has unbelievable wealth in their bank account but have forgotten that they have a bank account. In the same way for us, there is that 
essence of our being, which is real, substantial, and unchanging. And quite often we forget about it. So it would be very sad to be a millionaire and not know you're a millionaire. Can you imagine sort of spending your life worrying about money, having forgotten that all your money is down in the bank in town and nobody's telling you about it? At least in philosophy, we try and tell you that you're a millionaire. Now, if you read scriptures, and in particular the Upanishads, these are short scriptures which speak continually about what your true nature is, what you really are. And in these Upanishads, in particular, you will find it said again and again that what we really are is in fact of the substance of truth, unchanging consciousness, but that's what we really are. That our true nature is truth, consciousness, and bliss. That our hearts, minds, and bodies are formed to display that truth, that consciousness, and that bliss. And if you look around you, you'd be quite surprised if somebody expressed that truth, consciousness, and bliss on a regular basis. So, to some degree, we are like that millionaire. We've forgotten that our very nature is blissful. Now, every human being is naturally full of faith, which is very helpful. If they were not, it would be quite difficult to inject it into them. But as they are naturally full of faith, it makes this conversation or this talk this evening a lot easier. So what we have to inquire in is not how do you manufacture faith, but really to ask, what is this fullness of faith being directed to? Where are we putting our faith? And you can have faith in anything. It can be a car, or a friend, or a doctor. And the essence of the situation is that you use the car, or visit the doctor, or, you know, confide in the friend, and find that they don't let you down, then your faith in them grows. In the general run of things, however, the things a person that one puts one's faith in have their own limits. In fact, every thing in the creation is limited. And this is found to be so in practice. So everything we tend to put our faith in in the creation tends to be limited. So we have a sort of a limited faith in someone or something. In the context of philosophy, however, one can begin to redirect or return that fullness of faith to that inner self, to the spiritual essence of our being. And with that redirection of faith to the inner self, one begins to put one's faith in something which is unlimited, 
which never dies, something which is unmoving, something which is unitary or one. And the essence of this self is knowledge, consciousness and bliss. And through practical work, one can develop a tried and tested faith in that inner essence that ends in love and unity with that inner essence, which is the self of every being. And what I'd like to suggest is that this is the real work to redirect faith from faith in limited things to faith in that unchanging essence of your being. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the human being is naturally full of faith. And the young child is an excellent example of this. With its natural fullness of faith, it has an extraordinary capacity for expansion in being, in language, in movement, in learning. And this is because it has great faith in itself. This faith we spoke about being in itself. So it has this great faith in itself and its emotional response to the natural inclinations of a human being to talk and to walk and to discover the universe is full and abundant. And with this faith, it moves confidently towards developing its full potential. And you'll find that a young child in its very early years does not think or worry about its development. Its faith in itself allows for love, enjoyment, and fun, along with extraordinary achievements in terms of language, movement, and learning. A young child doesn't grumble about this development. He doesn't talk about how difficult it is to learn or walk. It just naturally moves along and develops these facilities powered by faith in itself. Another interesting thing then is that when you look at these uh, young children, you find that everybody is attracted to them. And is this not because it is happy and content in itself? It has faith in itself. And perhaps it is because this natural fullness of faith is self-evident in these children. So where does it all go wrong then? That's the <laughs> it's all so lovely to begin with and also uh, expansive and uh, wonderful. So where does it all go wrong or what happens? So as the child develops... One thing which certainly occurs is that it begins to consider or think about itself. For the very young child, thinking about development or itself is not a factor. But as the child 
develops, you get this beginning of thinking about achievement and also comparing itself with others. And so this thinking and comparison becomes a factor in the life of the young human being. And also with that thinking and comparison, you get the development of what you could call erroneous reasoning. Reasoning which says, I am my body. Reasoning which says, I am my mind. And that which says, I am what I feel or I am my heart. Now bodies, minds and hearts are by their natures limited. Bodies come in different sizes, colors, shapes, strengths. Minds have different qualities. Some are quick, some are less quick. Some are good at mathematics. Some are good at art. Some are good at knitting. Some are good at gardening. Very rare that you could say that any mind is good at everything. But also you could rarely say that a mind is good at nothing. So everyone will have inclinations in their intellectual capacity towards one thing or another. And the same applies to the heart. Some are very emotional, full of feelings. Some are very quiet and steady. Some are a little unsure. So going back to what was said already, bodies, minds and hearts are by nature limited and they're also quite different. Only the self, this inner self, is unlimited and unitary, the same in every body. By identifying with the body, mind and heart, this unlimited aspect of one's being, this unlimited self, is forgotten. And also, in identifying with the body, heart and mind, the thinking mind makes comparisons with other bodies, other minds and other hearts. And the comparisons can be one of two things. They can either be favorable, in other words, I'm better than you, or unfavorable, in other words, you're better than me. And this leads to fear and insecurity. Because even when you, or when, when the sort of thinking mind comes up with that I'm better than you, even in that, there's still a worry. There, there's bound to be someone down the road who's better still. So by this comparison and identification with aspects of the body, mind, or heart, fear and insecurity creep in. And also, and more importantly, this comparing and identifying, it leads to a forgetting of that essential self, which is always there. It's always there, but it is very quiet. And because it is unmoving and still, and because it does not raise any objection. It can be forgotten. And it quite often is forgotten when these other 
processes of thinking and comparing are present in the mind. So this inner self, it's not like your husband or wife who gets very upset if you forget about them. It says nothing if you forget about it. It doesn't prod you or remind you. It remains your inner self at rest in peace and happiness, except that the mind has forgotten about it. So it's, it's a, an interesting one. Usually we find if we ever forget anybody important, they give us a prod. But the inner self just waits. It waits for you to come back to it, if you could put it that way. Now, even though it is very quiet and still, and does not give out when you ignore it, yet forgetting it, or foregoing it, cuts you off from it. And as it is the unlimited source of knowledge, consciousness, and bliss, what happens is that a closing down of the life takes place when you forget it. If you forget this inner self, then you become cut off from knowledge, consciousness, and bliss. Now, to make matters worse, the more you forget the essential self, the more you are likely to redirect faith to those things that are considered useful in alleviating the symptoms which tend to arise as fear and insecurity. So what are the things that the faith is redirected to when it forgets the self? So when faith is redirected away from the inner self, it tends to be given to things like relationships. It would be nice to have a relationship to make me feel more secure. To wealth, again, which is very useful in getting one's own one's worries. To property, to intellectual skills, to technical ability, to good looks, getting the hair dyed or whatever one does, to expensive clothes, to developing a cultured Dublin 4 accent, if that might help, to becoming a connoisseur of wines and all this sort of thing. So all these things are or can be developed to alleviate the void, if you want to call it that way, or, or the lack one feels when one forgets oneself. Now, it would not be unreasonable to say that all of us here tonight, including the speaker, have diverted faith in varying degrees from faith in our essential essence or self to faith in one of the above limited things or perhaps something similar. So you may well say, fine, what's the problem? You know, I'm, I'm enjoying my wealth, I'm enjoying my property and all the rest of it. And the problem with putting your faith in relationships, wealth, looks, and pleasures to the um, detriment of putting it in your own self 
It has a number of aspects. The first and most important thing is that putting your faith in anything other than your inner self leads to forgetting of that inner self. And as that inner self is knowledge, consciousness and bliss, putting your faith in transient things must leave you cut off to some degree from knowledge, consciousness and bliss. And this is very important. If you put your faith in external factors, you are to some degree cut off from your inner self. If you retain your faith in your essential substance, not only do you enjoy knowledge, consciousness and bliss, but because your essential substance is the substance of every being, you have an excellent and unlimited relationship with all beings. So by virtue of putting your faith in yourself, you naturally develop a very good relationship with everyone around you. Whereas if you forget yourself and try and develop a relationship with everyone around you, it's going to be limited. Now the second thing is that relationships and wealth and all the rest of it are transient. They don't last. What you find is that life goes a lot quicker than you think and things which you thought at the age of 17 would last forever. You know, at the age of 57, you uh, begin to realize that they're, they're not going to be around for much longer. Now, the other thing then is that these transient things are limited, as we said earlier. And because they are limited, they will not bring complete satisfaction. I'm sure you found this, that whatever great project you undertake in life, be it going to university and getting a, a degree or getting married or raising a family or building a house or starting a business, you'll always find that there comes a time when you've achieved or you know, got to the point where th that thing has been done. And then you find that it hasn't brought you unlimited satisfaction. So with all these things, you find yourself back to where you started inevitably. I don't know if this has been your experience. You know, coming up to the leaving cert, you think if I had the leaving done, life would never be the same again. When the leaving results come out and after a hangover or whatever you suffer from after it, you suddenly find you're the same person. Then you go and you get your first job, or you go to college and get a degree, and again, after you've got that, you find you're the same as you were before it. And then you get married, and that's really going to change your whole life. Probably does, but you find you're the same after that as well. And on, on it goes. Every aspect of life promises satisfaction or fulfillment, but in themselves, they don't bring it. And finally, all these things have a good side and a bad side. They seem to be two-sided. So you get hot and cold, pleasure and pain, sunny and wet. You know, and they seem to go right through all these aspects of the world. Whatever it is that you put your faith in in the world, 
there's a good side to it and a bad side to it. So I, I thought we might just look briefly then at the, the qualities of a person with faith in themselves as against the qualities of a person who's put their faith in the transient. So we can look at this on three levels, the emotional level, the mental level, and the physical level. Now, on the emotional level, you can get a deep confidence, the confidence that comes from trusting in yourself and in recognizing that self-same essence in every being. It is a well-known fact that to the extent that you enjoy that deep faith in your inner self, you recognize it in others and enjoy a deep faith in that self in them as well. So with faith in yourself, at the emotional level, you tend to get a deep and stable confidence. Now the word confidence comes from the Latin con and fides, and it means with faith. So fides is faith. So confidence really is like having faith in yourself. And that's at the emotional level. Now a person who rests in the deep peace of their own self is going to have a peaceful, still and restful mind. So at the mental level, their mind will be peaceful, still and restful. The more confidence you have at the emotional level, the more still the mind becomes. In fact, both aspects are sort of mutually supportive. If you practice stillness of mind, you will find that not only does the mind become more peaceful and still, but confidence, self-confidence also increases. So both aspects are self-supporting, or mutually supporting, if, if you could put it that way. Does that make sense? Now the other thing to be aware of is that a still mind is an intelligent and reasonable mind. And this is because a still mind has a natural access to the knowledge, the consciousness, which is at the essence of our being. When the mind becomes very, very still, it gains access to consciousness, if you could put it that way. So if the mind is still, it becomes reasonable and intelligent. So that's how you know if somebody is reasonable and intelligent, if they've got a still mind. Now the third aspect of the being is the physical. The physical reflects the state of the heart and the mind. So a person with faith in themselves will have a heart that is open and loving, and they will have a reasonable and still mind. And from these two arises energy. So they will have the energy needed to meet the needs in front of them. 
And now to consider the person who has forgotten their true selves and who has tended to put their faith in the material and the transient. Now we probably don't need to say much about such a person because I think we probably all are quite familiar with these qualities which I'm going to read out. So at the level of the heart or emotions if you put your faith in your position at work or in your money in physical looks you cut yourself off from the eternal side of yourself and you're left with a faith which is connected with these transient things. Now it is very evident, particularly in these times, when there's a lot of talk of recession, that none of these things are ultimately secure. So the natural love and confidence in the heart tends to be covered over by fear and insecurity. So that this confidence which the heart should naturally be full of tends to be diminished because the faith has been put in these insecure things. And what about the mind? When faith is given to the transient, again, it is diverted away from the stable substance of the being, and the mind loses its bedrock of stability, and it becomes agitated. Without that stillness, all the typical problems of the mind begin to arise. First of all, you find it harder to pay attention to what's in front of you. And this is very debilitating. It is like driving a car with a foggy windscreen at 60 miles an hour. Not only is it very difficult to see where you're going, not only is it stressful and tiring, not only do you feel you're not in control, but everything appears to come at you much faster, depending on how foggy the windscreen is. So the mind, without the emotional stability of faith in yourself, becomes proportionately less still, and very much like this driver with the foggy windscreen. It's a tough situation. As the mind becomes less still, it becomes less able to make reasonable decisions. It must be clear to all of us that to make a reasonable decision, you have to have a still mind. And this is very obvious when the mind gets very agitated and it just has no recourse to reason. So the same is true to a lesser degree when the mind is a little bit agitated. And the third aspect of the mind that is not very still is that it begins to act mechanically rather than consciously or intelligently. It begins to use what it has learnt in the past, whether it is appropriate or inappropriate for the circumstances. So you begin, to, you begin to see that people, when they get agitated, do the same thing each time they get agitated. You'll notice this. I mean, you begin to notice this in people 
And if you were cruel, you know that you can get a rise out of somebody by doing something to them. They get agitated and they do exactly what you predicted. And this is because when the mind gets agitated, it tends to act mechanically and loses its access to intelligence. Now, finally, to deal with the physical. With faith in the self, we spoke of an abundance of energy and this capacity to meet the needs in front of oneself. And I think what can be said is that when the faith is given to the transient is that there is less energy, less capacity to meet the needs that arise immediately in front of you. And I think this is again reasonably evident. When there's a lot of inner activity in the mind and when the heart is not confident, there's much, much less energy available at the physical level to meet the needs that arise. So what about us? I put down five questions for each of us, including myself, to ask ourselves. And the first one is, are we blissful? This is on a, on a general level. So the first question is, are we blissful? The second one is, are we confident in our own essence, regardless of material possessions or props and supports and relationships? That's the second one. The third one is that, are we free from fear and insecurity? And the fourth one is the mind steady and still, free from imaginings and agitations. And the fifth one is, are we free from regrets about the past or concerns about the future? What I was going to say is that if the answer to these five questions is an unreserved yes, then I'd like to move down to Sligo and try and discover your secret. Now, if the answer is no, or even a qualified yes, then one can join the rest of us who have, to one degree or another, diverted our abundant faith from the self to the transient things which we feel or have felt will make us happy and fulfilled. Does that make sense? So if any of those questions gets a, a no, it would suggest that we have diverted our faith to faith in something transient. So let us do a little check on the sorts of things we tend to put our faith in and see if they are really worthy of that faith. At the physical level, you have things like money, property, looks, etc. Now, the good looks will definitely pass. I've always found it very sort of sobering to look at a film, an old film where you see somebody like Cary Grant or Paul Newman or someone in their prime, and then you look at them today, and there's a sort of a startling contrast, and it really brings home, certainly brings it home here, that to put faith in one's physical appearance is a very, very insecure business. You know, inevitably, and, and in a reasonably short time, 
you're going to be disappointed. As for the money and property, if you have not lost it by the time it comes to pass on, you will find that it's very difficult to bring it with you. Very difficult. If you, say, identify or put your faith in your sporting ability, then you've got even a shorter lifetime. Like when you look at some of these great sportsmen and they're past it by the age of 30 or 32 or something, then if you have put your faith in your sporting ability to the neglect of yourself, then life is over for you at 30 and you've got to find something else to put your faith in. Now, if you put your faith in your mental abilities, in your keen intellect, etc., then you're going to find that the mind is fickle and unreliable. What can be said about the mind is that it's a really good servant, but a very unreliable master. So it would be wise if you wish to retain the stillness and restfulness and intelligence of mind then it should become the servant of the self which is unlimited and unending. If it is cut off from that source it will tend to become the master of the person and quite often then it becomes a cantankerous, unreliable type of, of mind. As for the heart, it is the storehouse of what we have treasured. That's one of the things you can say about the heart. Whatever you've treasured goes into the storehouse of the heart. If we put our faith in the limited and transient, then the heart will at some stage become disappointed and let down. And then it will take all these letdowns and disappointments and will tend to close down and become very small. And the more closed the heart becomes, the more miserable we become. A big heart, a big open heart, equals happy person. Small, tight heart equals miserable person. So is there a solution? I wouldn't dare leave here without offering some solution. Well, what I'd like to propose really is, is that, hopefully, at this stage of, of the talk, there may be some interest in redirecting or rediscovering faith in our inner self. Is such a thing possible? Is such a thing worthwhile? How can it be done? Now there is nothing more valuable for a human being than for them to rediscover faith in their own selves. Now this does require letting go of some erroneous but highly valued ideas we have about ourselves so that the real self which underlies them is revealed. As this uncovering of what is always there, that which has always been there and will always be there proceeds, our abundance of faith is naturally transferred to that eternal essence with a consequent filling of the being with knowledge, consciousness and bliss. 
So how is the work to proceed? There are three basic ingredients. And the first is the company of good people who are kindred spirits in the work. Fundamentally, you can't get away from the need for good company. It has been said many times, and may need to be said many more times, that the company one keeps controls one's development and the reaching of one's potential. So if you wish to redirect the faith back to your essential self, you've got to find good company. And the second aspect then is knowledge about that inner essence or self. There are many sources of knowledge of that inner essence or self. There's the Bible, there's the Upanishads, and all the scriptures of the world which speak of that self. The knowledge from the scriptures will, however, be faced or opposed by the ideas and views built up over many years. And what tends to happen is that the knowledge of the scriptures is interpreted and quite often distorted so that it fits into that established system. To counter this, one needs examination and practice of what is meant by the scriptures. And over a length of time, the errors which have been accumulated over time are seen for what they are and are dropped. And the third aspect, or the physical aspect of self-discovery, is putting what the scripture says into practice. They've got to be put into practical use to the degree that we can. And in this way, discovering in practice what the words really mean. So there's a voyage of discovery to be made, a voyage to discover that which has always been there, but has been covered over. A process is needed by which the fullness of faith, which has always been there, is given back to its natural bedrock of support, given back to the inherent knowledge, consciousness and bliss, which is our essence, to loosen the grip which the transient has taken on our being. Now the guiding principle behind the school of philosophy is that there is such a thing as truth, that it can be discovered and that it can be taught. And in a way of looking at this really then is that the school is all about redirecting faith back to this truth or this essence of yourself. So you can see in practice then how it works. You get a good bunch of people together with the aim of discovering wisdom. And that's the first aspect, that's the good company then simple exercise can be given to provide rest to the mind. And it's quite amazing to see the effect of this simple enjoyment of mental stillness. And this practice of bringing the mind to rest, it brings clarity to the mind, and it also opens the heart, and it brings awareness of self.
having introduced the mind to rest, it can then be fed with words of wisdom, which can be put into practice and reflected on and discussed in the group. And the feedback from the practice enlivens the search and frees us from the erroneous concepts which we dearly hold. Study of the words of the wise and their application to daily life develops reason and faith. At a later stage then, you were introduced to meditation, which further enhances the stillness of mind and leads to further development of reason and faith. Now it's also worth mentioning physical activity. Um, we often think that physical activity has nothing to do with philosophy or love of wisdom. And nowadays very little work is done in developing attention. For enjoyable physical activity, if you want enjoyable physical activity, and this applies to work in the office, the work in the garden, any aspect of physical activity, for it to be enjoyable, the attention needs to be given fully to the work in hand. And this is another area of practice where delight in the present moment is discovered by the simple practice of attending to what is in front of us. This, talking about this here in this circumstance, it, it makes it sound very ordinary. But it's quite amazing when you get um, somebody who's practiced just attending to something for a half an hour or ten minutes and to get them to describe the actual contentment which comes from attending to something. Um, nowadays we tend to watch television, read a book, eat our dinner and have a conversation all at the same time. And this you know, I must say I'm guilty of it, but it, it actually takes from the quality of enjoyment of the present. And if we are to redirect our faith in the way spoken of, one of the things which has to be practiced is learning to attend to what's in front of us. I thought I'd finish with materialism. And today we live in a world where faith in the transient, in the material, has become paramount. When you look around you, how many cathedrals are being built which reflect the glory of the absolute? How many works of art, of paintings, are being produced today which magnify the beauty of the absolute? How many musical works today sing the praises of the Absolute? And what's very striking when you consider these things is that we have forgotten the essence of ourselves, that inner self, which all these great works are there to praise. And these examples illustrate the proposal that we are today placing our faith in the limited. If you take the proposal given to you, this means that we must be cut off to quite a degree from knowledge, from consciousness and from bliss. Which 
to some degree would begin to explain the state the world tends to be in. You know, it's very striking. We, we live in a, a materially very successful world, but you get the sense that side by side with the material success is an absence of the knowledge, the consciousness and the bliss which we were speaking about. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus gives outstanding guidance on faith. I'll just read you a little bit from what he says, which it's very hard hitting. He says, therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And so if I may be so bold as to suggest that the kingdom of God, to quote Jesus' words, this kingdom of God is within each of us, that there is within each of us that essence of consciousness, knowledge and bliss, which is our birthright, that it is readily discoverable through faith, through reason and through service that we are naturally full of faith, full of reason, and full of service. And the only question is, what are we putting our faith in? Is it in the essence of self, or is it put in something else, something transient? By relearning to have faith in ourselves, by coming to rest in ourselves, and by serving that self in others, we will grow in faith, we will grow in reason, and we will grow in love, and will find indeed freedom and fulfillment. Thank you very much. Very good. Well, has anything arisen from the talk? Anything that you'd like to ask or say? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the talk, and it's not a talk. Thank you very much indeed that we are in essence truth, consciousness, and bliss that we should be experiencing for such a long time. Yet, today, it seems to be natural and even perhaps unfair to most people who suffer so terribly, but you can feel the feeling of bliss which should be what we're told really is, is that your true nature is knowledge, consciousness and bliss and these are aspects of your essential substance and what, what, what you find and I think everybody would have some taste of this is that there are occasions in your life 
when you really come to rest in yourself. You know, I must say, I always remember sort of the odd occasion, sort of up the Wicklow Mountains, where just all my concerns fell away. You know, these would be very rare occasions, but there are occasions, I think, in everybody's life when all the involvement in material things falls away and you're just at peace with yourself. And that peace or being at rest in yourself is blissful. And what the wise are really saying is that when you come to rest in yourself, you get a taste of consciousness, inherent knowledge. Consciousness is full of intelligence and knowledge, but it's also blissful. That is behind the emotions. Now, it's a very funny thing that you can be sad in the heart and blissful in the being. You can begin to get a sense of that as the mind and the heart become steadier and all the rest of it. You begin to get a sense that there is that underlying contentment in your being always. Does that make sense? Well, in, in practice, what you've got to learn to do is you've got to develop this capacity to be still at all times. And with that stillness is that underlying confidence and bliss. I always remember early days in the school, the big question was, are you blissful? And everybody made unbelievable efforts to say, I don't know what you're talking about. But what you do find as time goes on is that there is an inherent bliss in yourself which you can have recourse to and you should have recourse to. And that's what this work of philosophy is about, to have recourse to the knowledge, consciousness and bliss which are your birthright and your very self. But you have to begin to develop that trust in it. Just to finish it, what we tend to, to sort of say is that if, if things go a certain way, I'll be happy. If things go the other way, I'll be unhappy. That would tend to be the framework that we work in. You know, if Galway win the All-Ireland, I'll be happy. If they lose, I'll be unhappy. Now, that's at a much more superficial emotional level. The wise man knows that the self is eternal and is untouched by events. So he's always blissful, even though events then, by their very nature, some will be joyful events, some will be sorrowful events, but they all take place within that framework of self-consciousness. Does that make any sense? The very nature of a wise person then is that they're compassionate. So they don't sort of say, like on an occasion like today, they would feel for the suffering which is going on in the world. But in themselves, they still never forget their true nature. Does that make sense? It doesn't make them cold or separate. It's a sort of a constant memory. And the funny thing is you'd be very disappointed if a wise man didn't retain that peace of the self. In fact, you'd say he wasn't wise. Sorry, you were going to ask. I'm just going to say on that uh, question that Des mentioned, that I had a daughter working in Manhattan. And yes. I was very somewhat worried about her. Of course, sleeping. yes. And I just thought to myself, thank God for the philosophy. 
if I didn't have it, I know that the agitation and the worry, I, I don't know how I deal with it. But I found that, you know, it just came to me that these things happen. There is an underlying contentment, even though events might be worrying or agitating. And I suppose you call it bliss, but it was an underlying I suppose faith that it would be all right, that I wouldn't have felt so years ago. And I think that it's another angle on bliss. Bliss is a very difficult thing to talk about it because it's not tangible like pleasure. The best way I can describe it, there are those moments when you really come to rest and then you know that your true self is blissful. In fact, this is a very good example of it. If you have a really good night's sleep, ever have a really good night's sleep, when you wake up in the morning, you know it was blissful. Does that make sense? You know, just that sort of deep rest and fullness of being, which reflects that bliss. I always remember I, I had an operation on my back years ago and they put me on petadine for a day or so. Now it was a drug, but it was full of bliss. <laughs> now you can see why drug addicts would be uh, carried away. Now that's getting access to bliss illegally and you pay a heavy price. But that bliss is there. And the, the real key is to learn to rest in it, regardless of, of the turbulences or the ups and downs of the world. And also, as I said in the, in the talk then, the more you rest in that, the more you have faith in that self, uh, the more that the mind becomes steady and still, and the being becomes energetic. So there's a lot of pluses, a lot of gains from the peace of the self. Very good, honey. Anything else? It's a theory about external things, giving you bliss or finding, you know, taking refuge in other things such as your job or money. And you say, okay, to put that in your faith. Some people see that their faith can, can equally let you down. Well, what I sort of proposing really was that if you direct your faith back to its natural object, which is your own eternal self, which is that underlying substance of consciousness, it will never, ever, ever let you down. But if your faith is given to transient things, which is, by the way, is everything else. Everything else is transient. <laughs> Only the self is eternal and unmoving and not transient. Everything else is, you know, the, the, the house is transient, the job is transient, you know. There's nothing in the world that isn't transient. So if you give your faith towards transient things, you must be let down if you give your faith towards your essential substance. Not only will you never be let down, but you partake of knowledge, consciousness, and bliss as well. Does that make sense? Now, what, uh, what, what does tend to happen is that as, as you grow up, the mind does tend to work in terms of thinking and identifying and making comparisons. You can quite easily see there's a guy down the road with a Ferrari and you know, all the girls love him or whatever or, or vice versa. Maybe you should say, girl with this Ferrari and all the fellas love him. But whatever it is, you get some idea that if I had a really fancy car, everybody would love me. 
So rather than having faith in yourself, you put your faith in getting the car on the belief that that will make you blissful. Now, what is being suggested that if any of those things, go back over your life of all the things that you put your faith in that were going to lead you to unlimited happiness, I think you'll find that not one of them provided that. They provided a temporary achievement and maybe there was a great delight, but there was always the day after. If you take conventional religion, Catholicism or whatever, you put God up there, you suggest so that you, you look inside yourself for that God. Speaking in terms of philosophy, one is looking for, you know, who am I or what is my essential substance or nature. One looks at it in that way. If you approach the spiritual from a religious point of view, then one generally approaches it with God being an external, unlimited being to which you want to have union with. You want to become one with that God. Now, these are just two different ways of looking at the same thing. The end is the same. You approach it from different ways. If you're by nature religious, you might approach it from a devotion to an outside God whom you want to become one with. If you approach it from philosophy, it's what am I really made of? What is my essential nature? And you find it in the same, you find it through um, becoming still and by hearing words of truth, uh, trying them out in practice. So there are two different approaches to the same thing. But there's no difference in them. Anything else? you find the say St. Patrick went up on the mountain but he came back down again so there are times <laughs> well I don't know I never spoke to like there are many aspects you find in say the approach in the school of philosophy is very much working in groups but you do need to practice becoming quite still in other words there needs to be some bit of practice every day at coming really to rest for a few minutes. Now, you find in that coming to rest, one gets a taste of resting in yourself, if, if I can put it that way. And, and through that you come to appreciate that inner self, not in an intellectual way, but through a practical coming to rest. That then needs to be brought back out into action. In the practical philosophy classes, we have this exercise of coming to rest, and people are encouraged to practice this regularly during the week. And what you find is that by regularly coming to rest, you remember. If you go from one job to the next through the day, you forget that piece of yourself, and you get tired as the day goes on. If you regularly break up a day by coming to rest, uh, you find that one begins to remember that 
there is this underlying self. And you can't have meditation. No. Uh, well, it's certainly in the school after about four terms, people are introduced to meditation, which is a sort of a longer period of rest. Not the same as up the mountain, but a longer period of rest. And the idea of meditation is to provide rest to the being as well. It's a bit like conscious rest as against physical sleep. Physical sleep will give you rest for the body. Just to put it in context, it's sleep without the being consciously alert. Whereas if you can learn to come to rest consciously, that's very refreshing for the mind and the heart. Anything else? There are two that I thought of final questions. Like one is, you're talking about bliss and being blissful. That just struck me there. Is your awareness of blissful always going to be in hindsight or retrospective? When you are actually blissful, it's almost as if when you think about it, you do it. Yeah, it's not a thing to think about. So you almost don't think it was blissful then, but when you were actually, you know, it's, it's, it's afterwards, it's like, well, I was up the mountain. And you know, you're thinking about it now and you're saying that was a very blissful occasion. Yes. But possibly while you were actually there, that awareness probably wasn't with you, or was that you? Those moments when there is deep rest and satisfaction and bliss, they're not moments of thinking, how am I doing? Like those times in your life where you enjoy deep rest, the mind becomes quite still, and one is satisfied and happy in yourself. So you, you, there are not moments where you're sort of saying, how am I doing? Afterwards, there may well be a sort of a, a thinking about it. But bliss is not a thing you think about. If you're thinking about it, it's not there. Thinking tends to be living in the past or the future. If you ever notice, when, when you start thinking about you're always thinking about something that happened or is going to happen. If you're to enjoy the present, you have to stop thinking. Like if you have a glass of wine and you want to really taste it, for the moment you're tasting the glass of wine, you have to stop thinking about it and taste it. Like if you're sort of sipping the glass of wine and you're saying, I wonder should I have got a bottle of this instead of that, it stops you tasting it. The same with bliss. If you think about bliss, you can't enjoy it. So the essence of, of knowledge, consciousness, and bliss is coming into the present and giving up, letting the mind become still. You then begin to be it. And the funny thing is that every one of us in this room, none of us doubt that we are. I can say with some confidence that there's nobody in this room who thinks they are not. The other thing is that it's quite clear that each of us is conscious. Isn't that right? Is that right? <laughs> We're all conscious. We're conscious beings. And what we forget is that that our actual essential nature is blissful. You see it in children that they're naturally blissful. As we grow older, we, we just accumulate these things which we put on top and cover over the bliss. Bliss is very hard to talk about. 
In fact, it would be interesting to start expressing the truth about your blissful nature more. People generally find miserable things more. You can chat more about miserable things. With bliss, you can only say, yeah, true. <laughs> and it's the same every day. <laughs> Could you say that bliss and awareness are similar? Yes. And the funny thing about it really, you've got to, in a way, acknowledge that you're blissful. In a funny way, we like talking about being miserable. But if you want to acknowledge that you're blissful, you have to surrender the misery. You can't give out anymore. You've got to accept that you're blissful. Funny, quite often we like being miserable. You know, if you don't get the right dinner, you have a tantrum. Adults do that, don't they? At least I do, anyway. <laughs> and that's the price you pay. You have to give up your connection with your true self to be miserable. But sometimes we reckon that it's worth it for a good dinner. Anything else? Yes? It talks about children there again. I mean, children have it. Why don't we have to go through the process of I think you could say that, that to a strong degree our educational system is deficient. What you do need to remind the child again and again that they are in truth, knowledge, consciousness and bliss, you have to remind them again and again as they grow up of what their true nature is so that they won't forgo it or forget it. You have to remind the child again and again that they are unlimited. Children can easily pick up the aspirations of adults. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, as a parent, you would like your child to be successful. That would be a natural thing. Now, unfortunately, most parents tend to think that, you know, 540 points and you're leaving, that means successful. Whereas the child may be naturally inclined towards um, art or something. So we, we tend to put requirements. As adults, because of our tendency to identify with material success, we tend to put those requirements on children rather than reminding them continuously of the spiritual aspect of their being. And I think that's where, as adults, we have a responsibility to keep the truth about the self in front of children as they grow up so that they can... Um, connect with it and also not to put requirements which are contrary to their nature on them. I think that's the essence of what John's Go to School in Dublin is about. Now it's very hard work to try and put that into practice but it is a worthy aspiration for people to provide good material education so that they'll be very good and useful in the material sense but also that they'll remember to retain that confidence in themselves. to degree or to varying degrees, that is successful. And I think it's interesting watching some of the people who've come through John Scotus, you would get a sense that they have, they've been given a certain bedrock of truth about themselves that will stand to them as time goes on. And they're all very normal, natural people. But they have been given that sort of bedrock of 
knowledge about themselves, which hopefully will stand to them as time goes on. I spoke to my daughter the other day, she's 25, and she had stopped coming to philosophy for a few years. She said she's going back to philosophy in the autumn. And she said, the reason why is that I find I begin to take myself too seriously. I thought it was very nice. You know, that uh, after two or three years not attending philosophy, she found that by taking herself seriously, it was becoming more burdensome. And she felt that by going back to practical philosophy, that it would alleviate that sort of heaviness which had come into her life. And yet, the whole point is to take the self seriously, trying to connect with it. In that sense, if you said your daughter says she takes herself too seriously, the work that we have on hand is, is to take the self seriously in terms of connecting with it. And to take the self seriously is to remember the self. When we talk about taking our little selves seriously, it tends to be worrying about ourselves. You need never worry about the real self. You just need to rest in it. Like when she was talking about taking herself seriously, she was talking about worrying about what do people think of me and all that sort of thing. To take the real self seriously is not like the other self seriously. One is enjoyable, the other is miserable. Anything else? Is desire absent? Yes. yes. And if it is, how do you then achieve your rights and visions or goals or material goals? The way it's described is that um, material work, that job and all the rest of it, the true way to approach work in the world is to serve the needs of others. Now, this is not as impractical as it may sound. If you work, say if you run a, a grocery shop, the essence of running that grocery shop should be to meet the needs of others. And if you meet the needs of others, that grocery shop will be successful. Whereas if you run a grocery shop to fleece everybody you can and make as much money you can, you'll do two things. One is that ultimately you won't be successful because you're not providing a service. And secondly, you'll forget about the truth about yourself because you're not seeing others as yourself. You're trying to rob them. So there is no um, dichotomy between serving the needs of others and success in the world. They are, in fact, synonymous. So no matter what business you're in, if you decide that you're going to provide a service, you know, if that's the aim, that business must be successful, or else you're not applying intelligence to it. And again, I think this is where the practical thing of beginning to look at what people need. You see it quite often. I, I work as an engineer, and in the business I'm in, people in the office would have a view that engineers only do such and such a thing. I'm an engineer, so I'll do it this way. Whereas. The view here is that, you know, the real thing is you've got a client who's got a need, you try and find out what the need of the client is, and you try and serve it as best you can based on your technical ability. You don't say, I, I don't do things like that. That's not really engineering work. The real work is to serve the needs of people. What you find then is that 
It's a bit like, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness is meeting the needs of others. And then he says, and then all things should be added unto you. What sprang to mind was very hard to have self-confidence when you don't know what the self is. I mean, the majority of people who we would regard as having confidence, what is it in? I mean, the question, who are you? If you don't know the answer to that, like what is the confidence in? Is it in the ego? Is it in that you have a particular skill? I mean, until you know the answer to who am I, how can you have confidence in yourself if you don't know what yourself is? I remember when I came to yeah. philosophy, one of the first questions was, who are you? I didn't know. I wouldn't have known the answer to that. I would have thought, well, I'm this person, or maybe I'm body, mind, and soul without knowing what soul was, but having an idea I wasn't just the body and mind. But I still, I think it's very different when you get an insight into the self, being the same self in all. That's a very different confidence. So if you don't have any information about the self or who you are, how can you be self-confident? It's a very good question. The question, who am I, doesn't have an answer like, you know, where is O'Connell Street? It's very much more in redirecting the attention to what is there. When you take that reading which was given at the beginning, where it speaks about the present moment, is the imminent absolute. So what I am is to be discovered in the present. And what you do find is that to the extent that one begins to put one's faith back into that presence or present, one begins to enjoy and develop confidence. I gave the example of ironing shirts being enjoyable or any other such thing, that if one has the strength, whether it comes from oneself or from someone else giving you advice, to come back into the present, one will find the self there. So it's more a direction, and then we spoke of a sort of a, a triad with you know, some advice of come into the present and you'll find yourself, some practice of doing that, which will give confidence in that. And that leads to a sort of a circular action where one develops that self-confidence. But I think what is important really is that confidence in things outside of yourself will be confidence in transient things, whereas that inner self is the only permanent thing. Yes, I did realize that. It was just what came to mind was when I see or when I hear people talking about somebody being very confident in himself, it just occurs to me, what is he confident in or what am I confident in? We talk about confidence in the self. Yes. I think a lot of the time we're talking about confidence in the ego or the me. I'm talking in general terms now. I do understand what you're talking yes. about. And it's the only real confidence there is. 
Yes. There is a sort of um, arrogance or showing off or whatever, which is sometimes taken as confidence. But I think if you examine it closely or look at your own actions when you're in that way, I think you'll find that that is not confidence. That is, in fact, insecurity. Yeah, well, that would be my own experience. But there are those times when you are content in yourself and the mind falls still and you are happy in yourself. Now, that's what... So that's what real confidence is. That's what confidence is. And, and one needs to discover that more. And in particular, you know, we spoke of good company, we spoke of good literature, good music, of opening the heart. There's so many ways in which one can approach this. It's more really to direct one's faith to that than to place one's faith in, you know, um, having, you know, a, a fantastic Oxford accent or something or, you know, knowing all about whatever. It's to be confident in yourself, to trust in yourself, to have faith in yourself. Thank you. Anybody else like to put their hand up? I would be afraid of flying, but I tell myself, you know, have faith, and, and that works, but, but there is a little thought in my mind saying, well, you know, people who suffered in the Second World War, for example, where would faith have got them, or how could it have happened to them? So I can't absolutely trust, or well, maybe it's that I don't know the self, but I just can't understand how such terrible things, I mean, that could have happened to anybody, could have mm. happened to me. Mm. So I find it hard to have full faith. Yes, absolutely, yes. To take the flying one first. What you find is that, is that fear is irrational. Yeah. So you can't really get into you know it's because of this and that but one thing having experienced some fear of flying myself one thing is certain it's not the present moment that i'm afraid of it's what's going to happen very shortly <laughs> if that engine you know the engine noise changes suddenly and that, oh my god something's going to happen and, and it's very much that sort of apprehension of something's going to happen the experience here with flying was that um, for a while I had to fly every week. What I found was that I got on the plane, I refused to talk to anybody, I started meditating. And what one discovered with this is, is that uh, fear of flying is fantastic for meditation. You really attend to the meditation. <laughs> and the other thing which was discovered in it is that when the attention is given to the meditation, it actually works. You don't notice anything perceptibly, but you suddenly realize that you're not really afraid. It is going to be some way in which the heart is going to be brought to rest. And in that rest, then, the fear is dissolved. As for lack of faith or trust because of the atrocities that are committed by human beings, I mean, if you take the last few days with some of the atrocities in Russia and in Spain. These are not rational actions, they are misguided actions. What you can have confidence in, and this is again the opinion here, is that everything is under law. But the law operates. You notice this particularly, 
I said earlier on, if you serve others, you'll grow to love them. We tend to say, if I loved people, I'd serve them. But what one has to have, again, is confidence that the law operates and then behave lawfully and trust, again, that events will unfold lawfully and will lead to happiness. If you decide that I won't trust, well, then you're in for a miserable time. So you've got to find a way of developing it. And really, there's good company, there's service, there's living in the present moment. You know, a number of suggestions were made. And the other thing then is that if you go back to your childhood, I think on the whole you will find that there was much more trust there. And that's very much to do with living in the present and not taking on the responsibility for the creation. You know, let the absolute look after it. All right? Very good. Do you mind explaining the quote from the Sermon on the Mount? Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I've never been able to make sense out of that. The sense here really is that it's very much a matter of facing up to the things that one is presented with in the day. What you sometimes find in a day is that things are presented to you to deal with. And it's very easy to not just deal with them freshly. You know, that you get up in the morning and somebody doesn't boil your egg the way you want it. Now, that is an evil. And you've got to learn how to deal with that. And very much it's a matter of, you know, of giving up all these sort of ideas of the way I want the future to be. That's the sense here, that you're presented with things, but you just learn to deal with them by living in the present. Because certainly you get the sense of things being a bit wrong, and, and then you can extrapolate and have the whole world wrong from that. Sorry for keeping the mic in this corner. Yes. If one finds oneself in a situation that they don't find desirable, they're unhappy in it, and they put into practice you know, the meditation, service, good company, etc. Mm. Will the law then work to bring about something more conducive to contentment in that person? Does that make sense? Absolutely, yes. Because very often the natural reaction is to actually then put your faith even more in the the other things um, mm. that we talked about as being the non-self, the changeable yes. things, yes. we tend to grasp more at worldly security. Well, there's two possibilities. You know, you could have a situation where your shoes are a half a size too small and your feet are very sore. Now the question then is it a matter of good company of coming into the present and serving others? Will that get rid of the pain in your feet? And the answer is no. So there may be situations which are unsuitable. You may be working in, in a situation which is inappropriate or, or there's something inappropriate. And I think really this is where reason and good advice would come in to determine whether there's a factor which needs attention to be changed. The other possibility is that you have never found a place where you're happy 
You know, you're always miserable. <laughs> you know, you're miserable here and you're miserable there. And then you've got to look to see what is the source of the misery. And, and generally it is some lack of faith or, or, or confidence in oneself. And then in that case it's going to be a matter of discovery of the truth about yourself. You know, I think this is where the words of the wise and good company become so important. Because we can easily form an unfair opinion about the self. You know, this is where we spoke about growing up, you, you sort of say, my ears stick out, therefore nobody likes me type of reasoning. And that leads to forming an erroneous opinion about the self, which leaves one, if you've lost your treasure, which is yourself, well then you're going to be miserable. And the only way to recover from that misery is to find yourself, or begin to move in that direction. So it's the question, are your shoes the wrong size, or have you uh, an erroneous idea about yourself? Does that make sense? Thank you. So it's a bit of a, you know, checking your shoes type of stuff. A couple of times, firstly with yourself, and then somebody else, the lady who just spoke now, mentioned the law. Yes. And I'm wondering what the words the law mean. Very good. Well, the understanding here, and again, it's just the understanding here, is that the whole creation is created and it acts under law. In the um, Gospels, Jesus says that even the hairs of your head are counted. So there's no such thing as chance in the creation. It's the creation of the absolute or the creator and it's under the laws which were set down to govern it. And really to be happy and content and enjoy the creation, one has to discover what those laws are which it operates under. Now, some people would not agree with that as a proposition. They would say that creation is not lawful. But the view here is that it is all under law, and the law is the law of the absolute. And that even though you see th some things which are uh, unfair or unreasonable, uh, as it were, one has to have faith that they are under law and that the law works. I gave an example that if you serve others, you go to love them. And that would be an example, as viewed from here, of the law operating. I don't know if that makes sense or if yes. you can ask further. So, therefore, one might deduce that if one attended the philosophy sessions, one might learn more about the law. Are the laws? It would be a sign of good work in the school of philosophy if that happened, yes. In any study of philosophy or of work on its development, one would hope that one would discover how the system works. It has been said, I couldn't really quote from where, but the purpose of the creation is to express the bliss of the absolute, that the absolute would enjoy himself in countless forms. Now, generally what we find is that, you know, for a lot of the time, creation is not necessarily enjoyable. And the proposition is that that's because we're missing the point at some place. 
and the very first reading that was given tonight, you know, from good company, was very much that if you come into the present, you will find happiness and bliss. If you live your life in the past and in the future, these are dark areas. They're not lit up by the light of the self. And they tend to be the areas where the trouble and the fears are. But that if you do come into the present, it's a bit like ironing shirts, if I can use the example again. That if you attend fully to the ironing of the shirt, you will discover the law which allows for a shirt to be well ironed. So maybe there's only one law? I think that's a reasonable statement of it. I think that is in the Bible somewhere, isn't it? That as the understanding or as the consciousness runs down, more and more laws are made to deal with the lack of understanding. But as the understanding grows, the laws become less and less. I think it refers to that in the Bible. And you find that in the current time, is that as more and more things are done unlawfully, as you put it, the legislature has to create more and more laws to deal with the various things that people are doing. But in a society where people were more law-abiding, you would need less law. So you get back to the one law, which would be love the law of thy God and thy neighbor as thyself. All right. Well, thank you very much.